Hello and welcome to your go-to Detroit Pistons podcast, The Pistons Pulse, co-hosted by me, Bryce Simon of Motor City Hoops, a former D1 hooper and current teacher, husband, and father of three amazing kids. And I'm Omari Sanko for the second Pistons beat writer for the Detroit Free Press. And of course, we're blessed to always be joined by our producer, Wes Davenport, who runs the show, puts the outline together. He makes this thing happen. Him and Robin, at the end of the day, are the two most important people that bring you the Pistons Pulse. We're at 107 episodes. I just, every time I open the outline and see this, I'm like, this is crazy. Before we get into Pistons stuff, and we have a, a new rating and review I want to get to as well. Omari, Detroit Lions, all I want to say is this was a magical run. I, listen, I don't want to say magical because that almost makes it seem like it was like, I don't know. Like, like a once in a lifetime. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so I, 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 I could have been. No, I, don't know. I don't think it is. Like, I, I truly <laughs> don't think it is. I think you're, they're a really good team with a lot of young talent and all of that stuff. I don't want to say too much. Like magical, I, I, I don't love saying that. It was a special year, though. I think there's a lot more in store for that team and that organization, all of that. But I'll let you cook because this is your team and truly you're kind of the voice of our listeners when it comes to this heartbreaker yesterday. Just what do you have to say about that before we get into the Pistons? Good Caesar. I'll start by saying good Caesar. You know, if you asked me this time last year, or even right before the season started, if they would, you know, go 12 and five and make it to the NFC championship, you know, I think 10 out of 10 people would, you know, like last September would say, yeah, that's the perfect season. Uh, I'm ready for that. And I think when you actually, when the parade stops, like when it actually ends, like there's no such thing as a, a satisfying loss when that happens. So sometimes you can exceed expectations, but still just the nature of the lost uh, puts a bad taste in your mouth, which, you know, I try to avoid doing because I think it's a fallacy to think that a successful season can be ruined because of the finish. Like, you know, either it's a success or failure. And I think the season by pretty much any measurement was a success. So uh, that was just an excruciating game to watch in the second half because you could feel the momentum shifting. And, you know, you're watching the TL and you just kind of realize everybody's realizing at once, like, okay, now the... Now the rain is arriving. We've been waiting for the rain all year. And, it, you know, it's been a drought. It's been a lot of happiness in the last year. And I was about to catch up. So, good season. They'll continue to draft well. I think with Brad Holmes. And they have some stuff to figure out, some some holes to plug. But overall, I think this was a – I'm not going to say A-plus season. I'm, I'm going to say this was a very strong A season. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a really good season. Again, I'm from afar. I'm not going to yeah. comment on – I know, Doug, you commented on the team I cheer for. Like, I'm not going to do it. I fan a certain way and it's kind of to my own. I don't tweet about the team. There you go. I don't tweet about the team I cheer for in the NFL. I won't for the next two weeks. And regardless of what happens after that game in two weeks, I won't either. I am truly happy though for Lions fans, for the organization, for the city, everything. I mean, they, they were the talk and rightfully so. And I know there's a lot of talk right now about some different things, but but shout out them because it, it was they were one of the best teams in the NFL, Amari. Like at the end of the day, there's no caveat to that. There's no, they were one of the best teams in the NFL. And then guys, if you saw me smiling, it's because actually all of us have control of what comes up on the screen and me and Wes were clicking the same comment at the same time. So we were both yeah. trying to put it up and we were then not allowing. Also Amari Cheryl Brown says, good to see you guys. Always appreciate you, Cheryl. Thank you for being here. Hi, Ma. 
There you go. So, Omari, also real quick, the hair's a little different today. Is this like a, hey, I didn't have to get out of the house? Is this a little bit from a new look? Is the Lions lost? I just stick my braids out. Okay. That's, uh, I just stick my braids out. You know, it was like six, seven weeks. Once you get to two months, they just start to get loose and frizzy. So, you take them out after get redone. So, this is this is temporary. I think by the next time we record, they'll probably be ready to go. So, fear not. Got you. So, Patrick Ernest says, Lions did a hell of a job. Let's clap it up. Absolutely. Also, I think that's my first cuss word on the pod, Patrick. So shout out you. But Patrick also said Bryce and Amari legends in the making. So I appreciate you. And that leads me into we did get a new rating and review. Again, guys, please rate, review, like, subscribe, all of that stuff. So YouTube, Apple, Spotify, wherever you're listening, it helps us grow. And and straight up, guys, we want to be the Detroit Pistons podcast in this space. Like, I think that's a goal. I'm a very competitive person. I try not to let it come out too much, but we want to be the Detroit Pistons podcast and we only get there with your help and support and then of course make the pin down over on Detroit Bad Boys YouTube with Wes make that your number two Detroit Pistons podcast keep helping him grow over there because he does amazing things it's not just behind the scenes he's a content creator as well this was from Michigan Highlander he says or she says thanks thanks for watching the Pistons so we don't have to maybe we'll be watchable someday Tell you what, that game on Sunday was watchable. Amari, we'll talk about that in a second. And then he said, Bryce's unfamiliarity with non-white bread food is hilarious. You need to get yeah. out more, my dude. I've been waiting for one of these comments, Amari. Oh man, but you know we've Bryce has made strides. Okay, like I think like like Bryce has Bryce has enjoyed all types of cuisine. I've seen it firsthand. We got Korean barbecue. We've gotten. North African food. Like we've been around, we've been around the world a little bit. So, you know, Bryce maybe shedding this label, just not having like the strongest taste in like a lot of food. Like I think he's like, we're getting over that hump. And like, I think we're seeing a new Bryce in 2024. What do you think, Bryce? Is this like, you feel like it's almost like the Grinch, right? Like your heart was just cold <laughs> and you just pull out warm inside and it, you know, it changes your taste, right? Changes I, I'm, your life. I'm trying, like, I try to be open to all things anybody anything any food any ideas any thought like all of that i try to be open to that i I do think you're right like i here's my problem omari is i just find things i like and i just want to stick with it i like consistency i like a routine so i go to a restaurant and i want to order the same thing i always get and i don't want to expand not because i don't want to try new things is i want it to be a good experience i want to enjoy that meal and so I've had to let go a little bit. And, and also, Omari, before I started doing this, I never traveled, never been to Detroit before the podcast, never been to, I had never been west of Denver, Colorado before the podcast. And the only reason I go to Vegas is for summer league. I've now been other places. I was just in Omaha on Tuesday. I know that's not like some crazy thing. Omaha is not like out of the I haven't been to Omaha. But you know what I mean? Like I've just, else, yeah. <laughs> I've just traveled different places. I'm on the road more. And then because of that and the people I'm with, like you and everybody else, I've expanded my horizon. So shout out you guys. I've been open-minded, I feel like, but shout out you guys for, like, I think when Randy and I were there last time in Detroit, you took us to, you know, I don't remember what exactly it was, but, you know, definitely not like hamburgers or pizza or something like that. We, we, we had some diversity with our food. So appreciate you pushing me out of my comfort zone. No, no doubt. No doubt. It's been fun the last two years. We've had great food in Vegas. I mean, you know, we've probably been to the past three summer leagues now. And, yep. you know, we have like our, our tie spot there. So, 
Yeah, it's been a lot. It's been a lot. One day I have to sit down and list all the different types of food we've had. We got soul food in Denver. That was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's been a lot of good meals. It definitely has been a lot of good meals. Yep. All right, let's talk Pistons. Amari, this team is coming up their biggest win of the season, at least most impressive win of the season, and we finally get to talk about it against the Oklahoma City Thunder on Sunday. I'm going to give you just a few stats. The last eight games, this is for all teams, their last eight games. But the Pistons are three and five. They're 15th in three-pointers made, even up to 21st in attempts, seventh in three-point percentage. They're 12th in assists per game and 12th in turnovers per game. So even the turnovers are down. Net rating is 15th. They're almost at a zero in net rating, just a negative 0.1, seventh in pace. What, what have you thought about what we've seen? Really, honestly, maybe, Amari? Definitely the last eight games, but even the month of January, it's been decent. And then especially with that win over the Thunder on Sunday. Yeah, I think there's a handful of reasons uh, for this. And of course, it, it, you know, I say coincides, but that's something we'll debate, I'm sure, later. But since K has been out, basically, which is it was eight games leading up to yesterday. And then I guess yesterday was his ninth game that he's abyss with that knee soreness. But the offensive improvement really has been there. I think ever since they traded for Gallo and Buscala, even just Buscala alone, I think just adding that dynamic to the front court has really added a little, little bit more pop to the second unit, which has helped a lot because we've seen how many leads that the second unit has just like lost almost immediately after checking in, which still happened Saturday, you know, when the team was fully healthy. And we'll talk about that too. But you look at that, uh, I think they've just been less mistake prone. Uh, I know at halftime yesterday against the Thunder, they had 18 assists and one turnover. Like at halftime, 18 assists and one turnover. The day before, they had 17 turnovers. It was one of their worst nights of ball control in a while. So it's just stuff like that that I just think shows the team's maturing and, and growing. But Jaden Ivey deserves a shout out too because I really do think just with how quick he is, uh, just how defenses have to account for him. And now they have more spacing-oriented lineups around them, especially with Muscala at the five. Again, I think that makes a huge difference. We've seen that second unit like kind of blitz teams now. Uh, they did it against uh, Charlotte last week too. And when you put a speedy guard with that group, it just seems like things opened up. So there's a handful of things, but yeah, I think it's just a mix of personnel, but also just the team growing up and getting better at certain things. I, I want to get this out of the way with the second unit. I'm, I'm okay with kind of the personnel that Monty is playing right now. I still wish we'd see a little more Sasser, maybe a little less Killian Hayes. I just wish it was a little more staggered still. Like you see the Oklahoma City Thunder and they stagger J-Dub and SGA and Chet. The, even the Washington Wizards did that a little bit. And I guess I should recap real quick. I jumped the gun here a little bit. The Pistons beat the Hornets 113-106. And then probably the one that really stands out when you look at these games, they lose to the Wizards 104-118. That was a tough one. Or we may be talking about a three-game winning streak. And then they beat the Thunder 120-104. And I think what's impressive about that Thunder win, Omari, like the Thunder were fully healthy. Now they shut it down because they're playing on Monday night here coming up in a couple hours when we record this. But it was the front end of a back-to-back -back for the Thunder. It was the back end of a back-to-back -back for the Pistons without Cade Cunningham. That was extremely impressive that they go and beat a team. And really, the Thunder called it quits midway through the fourth. That was the first time I feel like we've seen the Pistons really shut the door on a team. That was really impressive what they did. And you're right, like the second unit did a, a good job. 
The Thunder got it down to three in the third and the Pistons responded. I think that was the biggest thing for me is they, they were able to respond anytime the Thunder went on a run. They obviously made shots, but man, it just, I hate to like say played harder because I just think guys play hard, but it seemed like they were quicker to the loose balls than the Thunder were. And I don't think we can always say that about this team. They definitely were on Sunday afternoon. No, it seems like they smelled blood, which has not happened often this season, if at all, maybe in one of those first two ones against Charlotte or Chicago. But it seems like there was a moment in the second quarter where things were just flowing and the team wasn't second guessing itself. They weren't thinking about what to do. You see the ball going up and down the court really smoothly. And I don't think that that coincides at all with you know, the, the team being healthy, I know I know, Cade was still out even yesterday, but you look at Monte Morris coming off the bench, adding some stability there, the improved shooting, all of that. At some point, you're just going to catch the right night where everything clicks for you and things don't click for the other team. And it seemed like they just haven't had a lot of those this season either. Like, it seems like almost every team has brought their A game against them. And outside of Gilgis Alexander, I think he had 37. Nobody else in OKC really did anything. And... I think that was really the key as as well for the Pistons, not to take anything away from them. But it was finally the perfect storm of a team actually having an off night and them doing everything they needed to do to hold, hold on to it. Well, I think we saw what the winning formula is for this team in the sense of what they're going to win and be competitive. They they got to loose balls. They made winning plays. They made timely shots. And again, they did without Cade. And I want to continue to bring this up. If you go to basketball reference and look at the Pistons, they're 6-40. and 40. Their, their wins, according to this formula the B-Ball reference uses, says they should have 11 wins. Now, again, 11 and 35 isn't anything to write home about. It's still a season that we would not be satisfied with, but it still kind of speaks to what we said. Even during the middle of the losing streak, Amari, I would throw out the net rating, the offensive rating, the defensive rating at you, and we would come away from it like, Man, how have they not won a game somewhere during this? And you're right. It just seemed like every chance they had to win, they weren't able to finish it off. Or the other team had a great night. You know, like it just seemed like the way it worked. And so that leads me into, you know, how much of an impact you brought up Mike Muscala. Monte Morris, I think, has had an impact. He hasn't been great. But I will tell you, in that Hornets game, Pistons are down two after a bad start to the half. And quite honestly, bad process by Jaden Ivey. And you know I'm a huge Jaden Ivey fan. Monte Morris subs in for Jaden Ivey. The Pistons went on a 10-0 run, Omari. He got bogey a three. He gels the defender and hits a floater. Duran got a floater that was assist from Monte Morris. And Killian Hayes hit a three that was assist from Monte Morris. Those are the moments in the game where I think this team didn't used to respond. And we saw right there, Monte Morris comes in the game. Ivy's able to just take a break for a second. And the Pistons immediately responded. I think that's a huge difference why this team is playing better right now. And we've talked about that with Mate, just him being somebody who could come in and just calm things down, process, make the right decisions with the ball could go a long way because, again, there have been few games this season where the Pistons have just been completely out of it from the jump. There's usually at least a couple quarters where things look fairly even and they have a chance and then things kind of fall apart in like a two or three minute stretch. And then you look up and the other team's on like a 12-2 run and it's like, what happened, right? Like now they're down 15 instead of five and things kind of get away. Uh, And Monte, I think, gives the coaching staff and just the team in general that type of security blanket where you have a guy that can hit shots. He's going to play with, you know, pace, but also slow things down. 
uh, he can really, I think, create things in the half court, which I think has been an issue for this team at times, just him getting the ball to the right spot, you know, just knowing where to put the ball. All that stuff is adding up. And he's another vet, too. And, of course, Muscala's a vet. Gallinari is a vet. Just having guys who have been through, have had all the reps you could possibly get in this league and just understand, you know, time score and all those types of things. It all adds up. So I think it's all just been very incremental improvements. But eventually you get to the point to where you're a little bit more on level ground. And we're seeing now that for the past two weeks, of course, the Wizards' loss was a bad one, but to bounce back a day later with Falcade and then when it gets OKC, you know, I think you look at that weekend as like, okay, they got, they won a game they, sh- they should have lost and then lost a the game they should have won. And that's probably the first time all year where you're like, well, at least they actually had a win yep. to make up for this one, right? Yep. So. No, that's a great point because there was a lot of those games early in the losing streak where it's like, oh man, they, they should have got this one. But to your point, then they never went and won one they shouldn't have. I think I was listening to, it may have been the low post the other day, Amari, and between the Pistons and the Wizards, neither, obviously not very many wins in general, but neither had beat a team over 500 except the Wizards had one win. So like this was the second one between those two teams. And so again, every once in a while, you just, catch a team on the wrong night or you're on fire and it just seemed like the Knights, even if it did happen, then the other team still played well. And Aruna brings up an interesting point here. If we were still on the losing streak, OKC would have brought their stars back in. I just think it was a thing where once the losing streak got so far, no team wanted to be the team that it broke against. And so they were getting teams best where maybe you don't always get the most focus. I also think what you brought up about Mascala is interesting because we can tell Mascal is not great right now, Amari, but just the archetype of player he is, you can see what that brings to the court, right? Like his ability to stretch the floor, even on defense, he's at least in the right spot, even if he can't always get there. I wonder if this is a little bit of a shift in mentality for the organization in terms of, all right, we really need, we, it can't just be Isaiah Stewart that's our quote-unquote only big that can stretch the floor. We need somebody else, whether that's Mascala moving forward, they find it in the draft or free agency. I'm really interested to see how they prioritize that over the next 12 months. No doubt. And that's the one thing I, we talked about earlier in the year, just how much of the struggles are, scheme related but how much of it really is just not necessarily having the roster you need for the scheme to work and early on you know especially when i think point five was just being emphasized more on the foundational level the team couldn't really do that because they're playing in crowds so they don't have spacing they can't create those windows to score or really punish teams for you know like lax defense or the bad rotation or whatever and we saw that repeatedly, right? Just the, the spacing completely killing <laughs> any semblance of being able to, to whip the ball around and get an open shot. And Muscala is just having that spacing up there. And you're essentially, you look at just how dramatically the big man rotation has changed yeah. to where you're going from Duran and then one of Bagley and Wiseman who all do the, the same general skill set, but just to varying degrees of effectiveness. But they all basically do the same thing. And then Wiseman, I don't think, has played or he's gotten very, very few minutes since that Muscala trade. And along with that, you know, Jalen Durant's playing at such a high level now. You know, I just think the center rotation as a whole is a lot more. It lends itself better to the team having the spacing it needs to actually get things done. And I think as they continue to get more shooting, we'll continue to see that those offensive numbers go up. Yeah, I wanted to look up. Isaiah Stewart's minutes at the five compared to the four 
Because I feel like early in the year, if I'm not mistaken, almost all of his minutes were at the four. It seemed like almost all of them. And just to piggyback off how that rotation has changed, because, yeah, so now he has... 29% of his minutes on the year are at the five. I, I, I don't know. I can't go back right here in the moment to see what that was a month ago, but that's a drastic change in what we've seen, Omari. So it's not just the moving off of Wiseman and Bagley at the five minutes. It's now you get Mascala, but now you're also getting Isaiah Stewart at the five. So th- it's just a huge change there. One that I think we both agree with and we've seen the the benefits from. We are going to go to a short break here. When we come back, let's talk about Cade Cunningham just a little bit before we move on to some trade deadline things. Let's talk about Cade. The one game we saw here before he took a rest again, him and Jaden Ivey, those type of things. We'll, so we'll dive into Cade Cunningham after this short break. All right, we're going to talk about Cade, who, of course, returned on Saturday. What, he had seven turnovers? I know it just wasn't the greatest <laughs> night for him as far as that. And then he was active for the game on Sunday up until maybe 20 minutes before when he went from being listed as probable. And the team's injury uh, report that they tweeted pregame also didn't show Cade to just some sitting out. And afterward, Monty was a bit vague and, you know, just said, if there's any doubt that we just figured it wasn't worth it, which does that mean it's a conditioning issue or is there still some soreness? What does that mean? Uh, Definitely something we'll follow up on tomorrow on Tuesday before the team flies to Cleveland. But uh, overall, there's just been, I think, a change in discourse around Cade where you see the team compete against Milwaukee and the Timberwolves and then they beat Charlotte and then they beat OKC and you know there's people like I so like somebody asked me on Twitter yesterday like why didn't anybody ask about the Pistons playing better without Kate and I'm like I mean they have six wins I'm not going to sit here and you know make draw that conclusion after after two weeks but it has been interesting to see the team start to figure things out while he's away as well yeah, I'm I'm trying to decide where I land on that because I think Cade's really good. Like we've seen Cade Cunningham be really good. I think the biggest thing for me is we saw them back for one game. Him and Ivy play together, and maybe it didn't look great. I think you know Ivy, I'd have to look, but he didn't get a ton of field goal attempts. I just think this can work. I, I am very bullish on the fact that Cade Cunningham and Jaden Ivy backcourt can work. Now, some of that is staggering those guys still. I actually think Jaden Ivy playing in the second unit with Monte Morris plays makes a ton of sense as well. But I think those guys can play together. And some of it, as people have commented, involves Cade playing off the ball a little bit more. I don't know where Cade stands on playing off the ball, but you can run actions where both of them are being aggressive. I do want to mention... Yes, Cade had seven turnovers and it was like in 21 minutes at some point in the third quarter. And then he did play in the fourth. I don't think he turned it over again. He did end the game with 20 points and 12 assists. So it's not like he He wasn't all bad. Yeah, it's not like he was awful. And I do feel like Cade has notoriously come back from stretches where he's missed time and it's kind of been a slow start. It's gotten better since earlier in his career, but it didn't surprise me that his first game back from how many games he had missed wasn't great. I don't think we should rush to judgment about how this team plays and that they beat the Thunder without him on Sunday. I want to see the sample size of this team healthy. And if that doesn't look good more so than whenever he's how they look when he's not playing, I want to be able to judge. Okay. 
healthy team, makes sense, spacing bigs, all of those things. Jay Ivey seems to have his mentality right. I mean, he was awesome on Sunday, Amari. Real quick, Jay Ivey was awesome. I don't, I don't even know what the box score said. He made so many impactful plays that went beyond the box score. He was really, really good. I think that's what I want to judge us on is those guys on the floor together and how does that look? No doubt. I think J.I. has been really good at being more intentional and weaponizing his speed, right? He had a whole summer to watch our defenses play him. And this season, you see his finishing has gone up inside the arc in general. All that's improved. And you see it repeatedly, like we saw repeatedly on Sunday, like just the threat of his drive can create so much chaos for opposing defenses. And I think a lot of just making Ivy's fit with Cade work, especially since neither of those guys are really, have really shot the ball well in the NBA, is to continue to weaponize Ivy's speed. You know, I think they tend to play a more heliocentric style with Kate, and I don't think that's because that's the only way Kate can play. I just think the team has kind of gotten to the habit of deferring to him. And when he's not playing, you know, now everybody's just trying to win a game, right? You're not necessarily thinking, well, how do I play off maybe one particular person? Again, this is like small sample size stuff. I really don't think you can staff the team as being better without Kate just because they went three of their last seven in a six-win season. I just think you need much more sample size than that. But at the same time, just seeing how Ivy's played, now you have Monte back. I think Sasser's been a lot better over the last couple of weeks. Uh, they've had pretty competent ball handling, and you combine that with the, the shooting, and I think it just shows that with this system, there is a recipe for success and that this team can play at a certain level even when Kate's out, which long-term is probably a good sign, right? Yeah, and I agree with that point in terms of Cade being less heliocentric. I've never wanted that for Cade Cunningham. You know, there was always the Luka Doncic comps and all of that. Like, Luka Doncic is a different physical specimen. You know, like, he's just so strong. You know, everybody, like, this is Wes's pushback to me when I talk about Cade playing at the three is he's not built like Jason Tatum. You know, like, he's not he's not that size. He doesn't have the shoulders, all of that type of stuff. But I, I don't think I, I would like to see Cade be kind of the middle ground of those two guys where, yeah, he plays a little bit more off ball. But he, I just I, what I thought was special about Cade Amari was his all around game. I know I've said this at times, but defensively on the boards, creating but scoring, playing on ball, playing off ball, all of the different ways he can attack you. That's what I want to see. And that's why I think he could fit so well with J.I. is because if he does need to play off ball, well, J.I. can handle the ball and he can attack and break down the defense. And you have a rolling big and, you know, guys with space the floor. So that's my biggest takeaway right now is, and I want to see it, like kind of like you said, for how many ever games we need to see, is Cade, does Cade want to play that way? I think that's what it comes down to is it's easy for us to say, hey, don't be so heliocentric. If Cade wants to be heliocentric, that's you know that's probably what's going to happen, and that might butt heads a little bit with the Monty system. I don't think that's the case, but it'll be interesting, and I just don't think we have enough sample to decide that yet. So, and as Wes says in the comments, Luca hasn't won. It's not like he's made it to an NBA championship or anything like that yet. As as many accolades as he has, as fun as he is to watch, and all of those things, I don't think that that's a system or a way to win big in the NBA. Like that's my opinion, Amari. I don't know how you feel about that, but I don't think the heliocentric way of building a team and running an offense is the way to go. No, I mean, we even saw with James Harden and and Houston. I mean, he was putting up absurd numbers, but it seemed like they always ran out of fuel uh, by the time they got to the, the later stages of 
the playoffs. And generally, you look at you know teams that have won championships. A lot of times, they have two guys who can really initiate that offense. But the caveat being that usually one of those guys who initiate are either a big or a big wing. You know, whether it's you know Draymond or Giannis or LeBron, I guess in this case, or you know in twenty twenty with. AD, that's kind of usually how teams are set up. So for me, it's like, can K play the three, be a 6'6 with a seven-foot wingspan? He's probably more in today's league, just more of a bigger point guard yeah. than an off-ball player. But I think along with that, you know, as long as he can knock down, catch and shoot threes, that's probably fine. And it's probably just more so at this point, K directing traffic without the ball, right? Like, Maybe instead of bringing the ball up to court, he just gives it to Ivy real quick. He ducks to the corner and all the defense is immediately like, okay, like, what are we about to do here? It's like, just stuff like that, you know, because it just, I, I don't think it's necessarily a scheme thing. Like, Monty wants us to see the ball move. He doesn't want it to stick. But they've just had a tendency. We saw a lot of ISO on Saturday. Like, it wasn't just Cade. It was, you know, Bogey, like Monte, like everybody was doing it. You know, it just seems like the see has a tendency to defer to certain guys that they get away from what helps them actually win, which is playing fast and moving the ball. Well, and I think one thing that Cade could struggle with because he's not this elite level athlete is creating that initial advantage. Well, Jaden Ivey can help create that initial advantage for him by breaking down the defense. And then one thing I've always said about Ivy, and I think goes under, he is very unselfish. Like, say what you want about Jaden Ivy. He's not like, maybe the decision making is not always great. Maybe he does get into a crowd too much, but I think he's more than willing to pass the ball. So having Kate on the second side, attacking a defense that's now scrambled or bent or however you want to say it, that would be really intriguing to me. So I just think that they can work together. That's where I'm still at. And I would much rather be proven wrong by what I see with them on the floor together than trying to think that I was wrong because of what I'm seeing when Cade's not on the floor. Like, I don't want to make this determination because Cade's not on the floor. I want to make the determination seeing them on the floor together with other guys around them that make sense, which now we're kind of into, and then say, okay, well, this doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm going to change up the outline just a little bit. Let's just save the trade deadline stuff for the end of the, the pod. Let's go into Jalen Duran because I feel like you have a victory lap here to take with his performance on Sunday. Yeah, when I had him having a 2020 game this season and I had him averaging at least 12 points at 12 rebounds. He's not averaging the 12 rebounds yet, but that game did take him to 11.9. Yeah, like he's right on the cusp. Of the of the twelve rebounds that he should get that because he's been I mean over the last couple of weeks he might be averaging fifteen I mean his rebounding numbers have been insane but I've been impressed with him this season like I, I really have I don't think I expected to see his handle improve his touch around the rim I think is a lot better his footwork around the rim is better and he's also making much better reads with the ball and some of that is just the Pistons tapping into it more they do a lot of high screen and roll stuff like high dribble handoff stuff with him to get him involved, but uh, he had a career-high six assists on Sunday, and a few of those were just finding guys off the cuts. Like, there was a play late where he tracked down a loose ball, picked it up, and then I think Matze or somebody, you know, cut baseline, and he hit him immediately and got a bucket, and there was another play where he got an offensive rebound, and then I think fouled J.I. for a three. So, just have a guy that young who's already establishing himself as a low-post threat not just one who can finish lobs, but actually get his own bucket too, and as well as that, keep his head up and really, really move the ball. Uh, that's just an interesting player to 
I think have in your system, you know, especially a guy who's still younger than a lot of rookies. And the main question from here is just what step he takes defensively. Because that's still probably long term, arguably more important unless he becomes a Jokic type, which, you know, again, like there's only one Jokic. You know, I don't think you can really plan on that for anybody. But yeah, I thought Sunday he was really impressive and I was for sure the most complete game of his career so far. Amari Sankofa, so we have him in the building as well, says, I think Ivy would be great in the Vinny Johnson role if starting the two doesn't work. If they don't work out, both great trade candidates keep one trade the other. Yeah, I mean, I've said before, if, if he ends up coming off the bench, like, I'm okay with that as long as he's still getting minutes, and I think that's what you're saying here, Amari, as well. So, yeah, Jalen Duran, that post-footwork, Amari is really nice like he goes like because most righty post players are right hand dominant and so they want to go over their left shoulder and score with a jump hook or whatever well he gets into the middle of the lane or wherever he wants to go he gives a little up fake and if that defender gets off balance just a little bit he does a quick reverse pivot it's not like even a full like spin move it's just a reverse pivot and he's he's so athletic he can almost turn his body 180 degrees it's not as easy as it sounds but he reverse pivots and then he's able to finish. That is a really nice move and a really nice counter for someone hit like him. And it's not even just post-ups. Like it can be after an offensive rebound in a way to finish in those situations where he can't just dunk. So I really like what we've seen from Jalen Duran on the boards. He's always done this. He scored the ball really well in this game, even hit some of like the mid-range floater, short roll things. The passing has always been something that's been intriguing. I don't want to like damper the mood. I'm with you though. I think ultimately, like even if this is all he is, quote unquote, offensively and on the boards, I'll take that if the defense can improve. I think that's the biggest thing for me is, and it's not just him and the ball screen defense. His guards often don't help him out. The defense has to get better. I think that's one of the biggest things. And shout out J.I., Omari, Jaden Ivey's gotten a lot better defensively in my opinion. He is playing so much harder usually with the second effort and then combined with his athleticism, he's being really impactful defensively. I think he's been really good. So I think that's where my eyes are with Duran is just how much better can he get defensively and be like a real like defensive anchor. There's just so much expectation for a big when it comes to the defensive end because you're kind of the anchor of the defense. No doubt. And I think in the grass game, Duran having a longer way to go on defense is fine. I think that's just at the end of the floor, it takes guys a few seasons to learn. I know Dick Claxton didn't, you know, set the NBA on fire when he first came in. It took, you know, two or three years. And then once the game slowed down on that end, he made a big leap forward. But I think that's pretty routine. So Dern is just so instinctive and smart on offense that you would hope a lot of that would eventually carry over to defense where at least not an elite rim protector. He's at least a guy who's not going to be played off of the floor because he's just completely helpless out there. And he's quick. He can move well. We've seen him switch here and there. He's got the tools to be really, really great on that end. You know, it's a bit odd because he doesn't block a lot of shots. And I think a lot of times he's just out of position to really properly contest. You know, so there's still a lot of reps he needs there. But yeah, I mean, 22 points, 21 rebounds, six assists, and an upset win. I mean, he was by far... Uh, their best player overall. And if you look at him and Cade, like let's say him and Cade are like, you're one and two for now. Like if Duran really becomes that type of passing and interior threat long term, I think that puts you in a really good spot because that type of center is a lot harder to play off of the floor in the playoffs. If he can keep his head up and find op- open shooters, I think that solves a lot. 
All right, let's move on to a few other players before we kind of look at the trade deadline and, and what we think the Pistons may do and, and discuss some players they've been. So Aruna says, we really need to move Killian so we can free up minutes for Sasser now that Monty is playing. I don't want to talk about Killian Hayes here. I want to talk about Marcus Sasser, Amari, who has come in and we've seen like just ability to knock down shots and get on fire. He, you know, again, doesn't always move the ball as much as I would want. You know, we talk about Cade, kind of the ball sticking at times, boy on the ball sticks at times. Sasser does this a little bit as well, but I like the juice that he brings in terms of being able to make shots. What have you thought about Marcus Sasser and kind of his play, you know, over the last month or so? I think he's a lot more sure of himself and confident of what he needs to do when he's on the floor. I think one, just him coming in and really aggressively hunting his shot, I think has been fine because the second unit actually needs somebody who could come in. You know, Alec Burks has been really, really good now for probably three weeks. You know, but he's still gonna have nights where, you know, either he's not hitting shots or the Pistons just need more offense and Sasser, again, he's been a very consistently efficient scorer since day one. You look at his numbers and he's been hitting threes like inside the arc. He's been good. He's got the floater, which really helped the Pistons against Milwaukee in both of those games. And he's pesty enough on defense to where he can make some things happen. Although, you know, I think Monty probably has some concerns about just their switching scheme and if a guy that small can hold his own. But Sasser's been good. You know, he's probably firmly been, you know, one of the top three, you know, ball handlers on the on the team after Ivy and Kate. And a guy like that, you know, I guess you just wonder how much more time can they carve out for him? You know, especially with the trade deadline approaching if there's a deal there that could open up more time for him. Because uh, at this point, he's he's earned that for sure. He's been a really good backup point guard. YouTube user says, I love Sasser Swagger. Very disappointed in his defense. I think I set my expectations high based on Houston. I think I was a little bit the same. Also, it's just... I think it's a, a tell of how hard it is to be good on defense in the NBA. One, as a rookie, and two, when you're that small. So next time you hear people talking about you know, why there's not six more 6'2 players or 6'3 players in the NBA. This is kind of, of why. It just straight up, guys can rise up over him, even if he's in the right position and, and score the basketball, just because he doesn't have the same length. Doug McMiniman says, is Wiseman done? I think it might be worth hanging on to Mascala and Morris. So, Amari, we talked about this a little bit. I guess I want to go more so, who do you think is more likely to be on the roster the start of next season, James Wiseman or Mike Mascala? Like, do you think there's a chance that Mascala actually doesn't get moved at the deadline and maybe they, you know, sign him to just keep him around? Or do you think it's just like, hey, this is the type of player we want, but maybe there's an upgrade that they look for? I don't think they move Muscala. I mean, anything could change between here and now. Maybe there's a deal that just makes too much sense to say no to. But I think part of trading for Muscala Muscala and Gallo was just to have shooting in the backcourt balance that rotation. Shooting in the frontcourt balance that rotation. And then along with that, just have guys with the know-how and you know experience to just add some more stability back there. Wiseman really has not played. You know, I don't want to say Wiseman's done, but I think just looking at how well that they've played without him and you look at that free agency coming up, you do wonder, if, you know, at, at what point do you maybe, you know, figure if it's time to, to part ways or is it more so you still want to see if you can get something out of him before this upcoming free agency he's going to have. But Wiscala's been very valuable. I mean, I think he's done everything to show that he could play for this team and, 
just for keeping the group together down the stretch. He does, I don't think Muscala is a priority for the same move at all. I think he's somebody that they're going to keep around at least through the end of the season. So Wes says, interesting, Nick Claxton blocks for 100 possessions for each year. So his first year he went from two, then the next year 3.2, dropped to 2.5, and then skyrocketed to 4.1, and then 3.6. And just for context, like no judgments here or anything like that, Jalen Derns was 1.7 as a rookie and 1.4 so far here in year two. So just some context there with Nick Claxton on that. Last one here before we go to break. Doug McMiniman says, Bryce, do you have any draft insights coming? Still early, of course, but the Pistons have the fifth pick after the sham lottery. I'm sure we'll get plenty into the draft coming up. There are some guys that are interesting. We'll have some interesting you know, conversations around Alex Saar and whether we think he fits with Jalen Duran and does that make sense? Um, some people may think so. Some people are going to say absolutely not, especially when we're talking about spacing and, and how that might clog things back up again. And then there's some really interesting wings and all of that. So I think the NBA draft conversation will probably start once we get through the deadline, which is something we're going to talk about right after this break. We're going to go to break here. When we come back, Amari, we'll get into Zach Levine and other players that maybe the Pistons should be interested in. Maybe they should stay away from DeAndre Hunter, D'Angelo Russell and a potential third team deal. Do they go all in on DeJounte Murray? So after this break, we'll come back with all of that. We are back with segment three, and we're just going to dive right into the trade deadline. This is our second to last episode before that deadline passes. You know, we've seen, I think, more and more rumors and reporting over the last week on what the Pistons are looking to to, to do. And we could probably just lead off of Zach Levine, because I think that's probably, of all the, I guess, big names out there, I think he's probably the one right now who seems the most likely, but there's still a lot of hoops that, would probably need to be jumped through for that to actually happen. I'm just lead off at this. Bryce, if this team traded for Zach Levine, where would your worry meter be? So, I mean, it would truly come down to what the return is. If it's only yeah. expirings, I would live with it. I don't, I think the idea of Zach Levine, the archetype of player, makes sense to me, Omari. Like, it makes sense. And I know people, like, I think you need a bucket getter still. And that's even believing in Cade Cunningham. And G- I think there's enough shots to go around and usage and all of that. Like, that that doesn't worry me. These guys have to learn to play with other good players. I would not trade a real asset for Zach Levine. And I realize people are say, well, Boyan's a real asset. You're right. So, but I would not trade any of the young four. That would be Cade, Ivy, Asar, Duran. I would not trade any sort of draft pick, any of that stuff. Talking to Sam Vazzini, he doesn't think he thinks if the Bulls don't get anything more than expirings, they won't they won't move Zach Levine. They would be more inclined just to keep him. So I don't know what's going to end up playing out and who's going to end up winning out here. But I would be okay with it if that was the move. Again, depending on like, we don't know the long-term medicals on Zach Levine either, Amari. I think that's a huge part of it as well in terms of, you know, his, his legs, his knees and all of that. So that's where it's at. Just so everybody knows, it is a big contract. 43 million next year, 46 million the year after that, $49 million player option, 26, 27. So there is a lot of money on the books for Zach Levine. I can absolutely understand the hesitation. Yeah. I mean, I think the main worry, you know, for 
fans who have watched this team for a while, but also, you know, I'm sure for folks in the front office as well, it's just the fact that Levine has an injury history and this team just got off of an era that was ruined because of a similar scenario where you trade for a guy, Blake Griffin, you know, who's probably going to give you some years of success if he's fully healthy, but that's the big question mark. And it's just a weird spot to be in because this team tried to slow road to rebuild and quote unquote do it right. And that's, that's failed. So now you have all this money to burn and it's like, is this the right move now? And how much more can you really stomach of a season like this? You know, when I guess at six wins now, you're probably on pace to not set the record for fewest wins and, an 82-game season, which was set by the 72-73 Sixers with nine wins. But even with that, uh, you're still going to fall well short of preseason expectations. So, I mean, I'm intrigued to see where things go with Levine. You know, I I don't think the Pistons have much interest at all in giving up a young guy, like whether it's Asar or Jaden or Jalen or obviously Kate and even Isaiah Stewart. You know, I don't think they're looking at Zach Levine, like, we're going to start to part with our core for this. But if it's a pure salary dump, then that probably becomes a bit more likely. It's just from Detroit's end. Can you really afford to sacrifice more assets in a season like this? And I think the answer is probably probably no. But there's still a few days before the trade deadline. So I'm curious to see where that goes. Well, and here's the other thing. It also depends on what else is available. Like, what is the actual market for Boyan Bogdanovich? What is the actual market for Alec Burks and Monte Morris? Because if you can trade Boyan for two first round picks, which again, I was listening to the pod the other day and somebody reported that they got offered two first round picks at the deadline last year for Boyan. So if you're getting offered first round picks multiple for these guys, then that's different, right? Like if you're telling me you can end up with three first round picks and a couple second round picks, if you move all these guys in their own deals, not because I necessarily want the Pistons to make those selections, but then you could use those picks to go get a guy that makes more sense. Then that's a completely different story. So it just kind of depends on what is available for these guys in terms of the actual assets that they can return. And then, so here, let me ask you this. I feel like D'Angelo Russell has all of a sudden came up, not because of like a direct deal with the Pistons, but because of the Hawks and Lakers deal that is out there around the DeJounte Murray and the Lakers. Would you be willing or consider to bring in D'Lo in terms of a third team? Because I feel like that's just a smaller version of Zach Levine, right? Obviously not as talented, but comes with the same, you know, not a great defensively, inefficient, make some bonehead plays, but a lot less money, Omari, for D'Angelo Russell, like less than $20 million on a play op- player option next year. What about getting involved in that deal, bring in D'Angelo Russell? Would, would, that, would that be something that would make a little more sense? Like you're not committing the type of money in years that you would be on a Zach Levine. If Russell were on an expiring deal, I think that would be easier to stomach. He still has a full year left. And along with that, of course, he plays a position the Pistons already set long-term in. So if you're taking on that deal in a three-player trade, it's probably not for D'Angelo Russell. It's because you got a first-round pick, like a pretty decent first-round pick to eat that salary. And that's probably what it would come down to as far as that. You know, they want to add vets to this locker room. Like, I don't think they're done with Gallo and Muscala. I think there's an awareness that it's time to grow up a little bit and really lock in on your core and then figure things out from there. Like, what can you, can you add to it to help these guys get to the next step? And D'Angelo Russell, I don't think necessarily has a reputation of being 
that type of vet. So I think from Detroit, that would just purely be a salary dump. We would have been stupid to not accept this first round pick because otherwise I just think fit wise, I think locker room wise, I don't know if Delos the type of guy that the thing would prioritize is probably just more so this was the right landing spot and we got something for it. So Big Chi says Rui Hachimura or PJ Washington or neither. PJ is a guy that I'm kind of interested in. I know a lot of people will immediately critique his defense. I think he went for 40 the other night, um, which is kind of crazy to think about. But, you know, he's a career 36% three-point shooter on good volume. He plays the four, which is obviously something this team needs. Maybe he doesn't rebound as much as as what you would want. Maybe the defense isn't as good. But again, it, it always comes down to assets. But assuming it's it's a reasonable situation, I think P.J. Washington is a guy that I would be somewhat interested in. And he's on a decreasing contract. He's at just under $17 million right now, then down to 15.5, then down to 14, which will probably be right about the MLE by the time we come around to that year. So PJ Washington is an interesting one to me. Does Rui or PJ Washington make any sense to you or intrigue you at all? Yeah, PJ had 43 a couple of days ago. I had no clue. Yeah. Like the scoring has been so crazy that like a 43 point game like flew under the radar, which is insane. He was like 17 for 22. Like he was on the heater that night. You know, I think I like the idea of Rui more. Okay. Like Rui doesn't strike me as a guy that the Pistons are going to acquire just because if you're the Lakers, you probably want to keep a player like that unless you're getting more of a star in re- return. I just like Rui's game. I think he's a really solid scorer. I think he's probably a bit more solid defensively than P.J. Washington is. And I also think what you get from P.J., you already get a good amount of that from Isaiah Stewart. Maybe P.J.'s much more established. Well, he is a much more established three-point shooter. I think both percentage and volume-wise – but Isaiah has been shooting the three pretty well this season. You've already invested in him. You know, I would probably look at PJ more so next year than this year if he still feel like you need help at power forward. But looking at this draft, looking at the money the Pistons have, you know, I don't know if I'm going to prioritize trading for another young big at this point. But maybe there's a trade out there that makes sense. Okay. Who knows? Let's go back to the backcourt then. This would be the move that's like, uh, it's not all in, but I think this is the one that would really move the needle. And I also want to throw this out there because I, again, listen to pods where people are like, why would the Pistons be buyers at the trade deadline? They're, they're awful. They should be sellers. And yes, that makes sense. But the other thing is, if you look at the names in free agency, if there's something you can go do now, it's not about trying to win this year, Amari. It's about trying to win games next year. It's, it's pre-agency is what people call it. And so that's why you hear the Pistons being involved in some of these names. And I just want to throw out some of the free agency, like Tobias Harris, Buddy Hild, Gary Trent Jr., Markel Fultz, Malik Beasley, Kelly Olenek, all the 76ers forwards. Malik Monk actually is a guy I would love for them to bring in. Grayson Allen, Kyle Answer, like Isaiah Hardenstein, another guy I really like if you needed a big. Those are kind of the names we're talking about. So let's bring up the biggest name on the market, and that's DeJounte Murray. You're not getting DeJounte Murray without including J.I. or Asar, both, and probably some draft capital. That's a little bit more of an all-in move, Amari. Do you think DeJounte Murray is good enough and makes enough sense for the Pistons to do something like that? I actually do feel like he is, especially with his salary. Like, he's a really good player. You know, he's a two-way player. Shooting has improved immensely, plus athlete. And you're just looking at the type of point guard that you could play next to K. Granted, you could play a lot of guys next to K because K does everything. But I think that that backcourt probably – I think that 
Cade's size kind of offsets DeJounte Murray's lack of it. And a lot of the reason why the Hawks are not able to make it work is just because you can't build around two small guards in the modern NBA. You know, like we saw Portland with Lillard and TJ McCollum all those years, you know, come up short every year. And the NBA has even moved away further from that since then now. So it just hasn't worked. You know, I, I just think value-wise, maybe floor raising your eyes, DeJounte Murray is probably the guy on the market who checks those boxes the most. But again, you get into, you know, one, I think the Pistons are more so prioritizing keeping their young guys and looking to move on to them. You know, so I think that alone, they're looking at Jaden Ivey and Cade. Like, we feel like both of these guys could, you know, get to the John St. Murray's level. You know, so do we want to trade them? Especially when they're already on cost control uh, contracts for now. Arlo Cade's obviously going to, being extension eligible this offseason. So next year is, is the last year of Kate being cheap. You know, again, you have these big decisions coming up. So the team really has a short amount of time to figure out who to prioritize. But I don't think they're looking to move their young guys before the the trade deadline. You know, I think just from a pure value standpoint, do you upgrade by moving one of us or Ivy for DeJounte Murray? Uh, 100%. But along with that, does he make you a contender next year? No. And does he save you money? Also, no. And that's probably to be why the Pistons are not as e- as eager to do it. But again, something may come up where just value-wise, it makes a lot of sense. So YouTube user says Murray is more of a point guard than Ivy, in my opinion. Like, I would agree with that. I think part of this move, there would be a caveat like, hey, Cage, you're going to have to play off the ball more than what you are now to maximize what DeJounte Murray is. So, like, that's another thing you will have to hash out. The, you know, DeJounte's not on a bad contract. He's going into his extension next year. 25, just under 27, just under 29, $30 million player option. I know those sound like huge numbers, but as we know with the salary cap, that's not crazy. He will be in his early 30s, but you know he's right there in his prime. He's averaged 20 points a game for the last three years, Amari. He's shooting 39% on six attempts from three this year. So I think a lot of times the knock on DeJounte is he's not a good shooter, those numbers are pretty solid. So over 83% from the free throw line, doesn't get there a ton, rebounds the ball, like kind of an all-around player. I think the other thing a lot of people around the league are trying to figure out is why is he not the same level of defender with Atlanta that he was in San Antonio? So I think his market's not quite as lush right now because he isn't playing defense at the level. A lot of people kind of saw him in San Antonio and what his reputation is. So that will be interesting. Real quick here, I actually emailed Keith Smith about this just to make sure because I know a lot of people are talking about like trading this year's pick. So they can't trade this year's pick because it has the protections on it, but also the stepping rule. So even if they do get it, which they most likely will, they can't trade it before the draft because then they could potentially lose next year's pick still also. Once you make the pick, though, you can immediately trade the draft rights to that player. So they could draft said player and then trade them. Or if they draft them and sign them, then they can wait 30 days and trade them. It's really about money. If they just draft the player and then trade them, they don't have any money in terms of salary matching on that rookie player. So that's what it comes down to with trading this year's pick. It's not going to happen beforehand. I think they could put some weird protections on it. Most likely it wouldn't happen beforehand, but they could make that trade after they make the actual selection. Yeah, so in that scenario, it would be something that they have a handshake deal with maybe in June, and then you just have to wait to execute it. You know, which, again, we've talked about 
their cap space in relation to the trade market. And it's probably more likely that they look to make a trade rather than just sign a guy in free agency. We're probably we're probably six, seven years past the point of free agency really being a difference maker in the NBA. Like Kevin Durant went to the Warriors and I was like, the last big move I can remember. And that was only because that that was the cap spike here, which they purposely didn't do. Like it's going to be a gradual increase. I think they maxed it out at 10% is all it can jump because of the year the cap spike hit and opened up all that money. Absolutely. And that was literally a once in a lifetime opportunity. Like that was, if you're just talking about lucky coincidences, like for Golden State to have that, not only have that spike then, but to have, one of the top three guys in the NBA just decided to leave the team he was drafted for for them is insane. Not to make this a Kevin Durant segment, but overall, I would just focus much more on the trade market for the Pistons, not just through the next week, but going into the summer as well. You know, I think that they're much more trade focused than free agency focused at this point. All right, Amari, I know we got to get you out of here. You got some stuff you got to hop on as well. So we're going to keep this under an hour. A couple last names. DeAndre Hunter is another name that continues to come up. And then Quinn Grimes is a name that's come up recently. Like, I don't know if that's reported. It's just a name that's come to me. Either one of those two names kind of interests you, makes sense with this roster. You know, one that you would be more interested adding than the other. Quentin Grimes makes a lot of sense for this team. I know he's only around 6'5", 6'6", but he's a guy who can really shoot the ball. He's a career 38% shooter, like shooting 37% this season. And I'm curious like what the price would be for New York because there have been rumors about him being available. But along with that, he's having a pretty good year. And if I'm New York, you know, I'm playing pretty well. This isn't a guy I'm going to trade just for the sake of it. You know, like I'm probably going to look for some good draft capital in return. And for me, that just probably reels the Pistons out because there's nothing asset-wise that I think they could offer them that would be worthwhile unless the Pistons are like, hey, we're going to give you a 2029 first. Uh, they're not going to do that for Quentin Grimes. So. Yep. All right. I know we got to get you out of here. A little shorter this week. I'm sure we'll have tons of coverage over the next week as we really get to the trade deadline. After the trade deadline, around the trade deadline, we'll record and go live as much as we can whenever moves happen and all of that. And then hopefully we get some more wins from the Pistons and then we can get into some NBA draft coverage after the deadline, all of that stuff. So a lot of really good stuff coming up. So we thought we'd keep it a little bit shorter tonight. Wes, thank you as always. Amari, take it away, my guy. Big thanks to everybody who tuned in and big thanks, of course, to our editor, Robin Chan, our editor, Nicole Avery Nichols, our executive producer, Azadette Delgado, and our sports editor, Kirkland Crawford. And a big thanks to Wes. And we'll talk to you all next week.